says, Then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren, I've lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And the high priest, Ananias, commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. For you sit to judge me according to the law, and do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? And those who stood by said, Do you revile God's high priest? Then Paul said, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. But when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other were Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. And when he said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For Sadducees say there is no resurrection and no angel or spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. Then there arose a loud outcry, and the scribes, the Pharisees' party, arose and protested, saying, We find no evil in this man. But if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. Now, when there arose a great dissension, the commander, fearing lest Paul might be pulled to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and to take him by force from among them and to bring him into the barracks. But the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. And Father, we humbly ask as we stand here today, just in a sense, Lord, we think of standing in attention before you, Lord, and we want to hear what you would speak to us. Lord, we look to you as our Father. Jesus, we look to you as our Lord, our Commander-in-Chief, and as your good soldiers, Lord, speak things that we need to hear today. Strengthen us, Lord instruct us let us receive what you would want to say to us and what we need to hear most of all Lord, we ask you would bless your word as it goes forth this morning and that it would be your spirit who speaks things to our hearts from it and we ask this together expectantly in jesus name and everyone said amen amen you may be seated you know discouragement can indeed be a very real battle at times in our lives, even as Christians, even as those who follow the Lord, there can be times where we ourselves can get discouraged. We can kind of feel despondent. I think even depressed, it's fair to say, on occasions. And I think we actually become all the more prone to that as we seek to really serve the Lord, as we seek to let our life be useful for God's purposes and seek to influence other people for good as we then deal with difficulties and sometimes even disappointments, we can become wearied and discouraged. Remember, it was Paul the Apostle himself who said, let us, including himself, not grow weary in well-doing, for in due season we'll reap a harvest if we don't lose heart or give up. But again, Paul indicated that he himself, like all of us, we can grow weary even in well-doing. It's a part of the experience of every believer and serve the Lord. Yet the good thing is, is that though we get discouraged at times, the Lord has a wonderful way of kind of just coming in and encouraging us in our soul in the times when we really need it. And that's really what we find happening with Paul in this next set of circumstances. If we could just to refresh our memories, what Paul has kind of been through. Remember, Paul had been falsely accused 
of bringing Gentiles into the temple area by his actions. He hadn't done it, but he was falsely accused of doing that. As the result of that, Paul was attacked. He was beaten physically. They actually were trying to beat him to death, the text tells us, actually trying to kill him. They were beating him so bad in kind of this lynch mob. The Roman police had to come in and intervene. They chain Paul. They take him into custody and are going to bring him into the prison barracks so he's away and, and in safekeeping for the time so they can figure out what's going on. And before Paul's taken into the barracks, remember he asked permission to speak to the crowd, to the crowd of Jewish people, the actual ones who were trying to beat him to death. And Paul stood up having been given permission. And remember, he wanted to bear witness to them of how credible he knew it was to believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah that God predicted he was going to send to his people. And so Paul begins to then give testimony of his own conversion experience to the people and how at one point he himself, like them, had hatred and animosity towards Jesus and the way of Christianity when he was blinded and he didn't understand. But how the Lord himself came and revealed himself to Paul as who he was and caused Paul to recognize how wrong he had been. And in that moment, Paul surrendered to the lordship of Jesus, began to serve him and began to follow his purposes and even received his ministry assignment, which verse 18 of chapter 22, Paul said that the Lord told me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly for they won't receive your testimony concerning me. And then again in verse 21 of chapter 22, the Lord Jesus said to Paul, depart for I will send you far away from here to the Gentiles. And as soon as Paul said that word to that Jewish crowd, he lost them. When they heard him say that he was sent as a minister to go and predominantly reach the Gentile people, that started another riot. And once again, the police force of the Romans had to intervene. The commander knew at this point, this is not a civil matter. This is a religious issue. And so because of that, we saw in our last verse last time, chapter 22, verse 30, it says the next day, because the commander wanted to know for certain why he was accused of the Jews, he released him from his bonds and commanded the chief priests and their council to appear and brought Paul down and set him before them. So Paul is now going to be examined by this religious council in regards to what in the world is going on and why they are so upset with him. So verse 1 begins by telling us, chapter 23, then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. So Paul now is standing, if you would, trial once again. He's now before a religious council and he's forced to testify before what we might say is sort of like the religious supreme court in the day of of ancient israel it tells us here that the council is what paul's standing before and that's a reference to what we call the sanhedrin and the sanhedrin is basically or was at that time a, a 71 member ruling council of religious officials it was made up of priests it was made up of former priests it was made up of pharisees and sadducees two predominant religious sects in that day and they exercised judicial power in all matters that were religious 
and moral. Uh, They even exercised at times judging people and sentencing them to be punished for what they saw as religious violations. Uh, They could subject people to different forms of punishment. And it consisted of these religious leaders and presided over by then the 71st member was the high priest at the time. And it's this council that Paul is now put before, and sadly, much of what we know historically of the Sanhedrin from the days of Jesus, and now even in the book of Acts, this religious council became very corrupted by sort of political maneuvering and abuse of power, and the Roman commander has now put Paul, it tells us, in front of this council to be examined by them, and verse 1 says that as Paul's before them, It says he's looking earnestly at them. The idea is his head's not down. He's not in a situation where he's feeling like he's intimidated by them. He's actually very eager now to speak to this council because Paul's thinking, even probably with a black eye and still a little bit bloodied and beaten up, he's thinking once again, wow, this is an even better opportunity. I mean, talking to the crowd was one opportunity, but this is like, I mean, this is an ancient Israel, like standing before Congress or standing before just the high rollers, the movers and shakers. And he's thinking, these are the religious leaders in Israel. If I can win them over to Jesus, there'll be a spiritual awakening in all of Israel if I can turn them to the Lord. So he starts to, if you would, begin to give testimony in verse 1, and his opening line, you notice in verse 1 there, he says, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. So Paul begins by saying, look, despite what may be perceived of me or said of me, despite how I've been falsely accused, he says, I have confidence within my own conscience that I don't sense that I am guilty for anything that I'm being accused of falsely. Again, when we see the word conscience in the scripture, remember, our conscience, you might say, is kind of that internal moral judge that God's kind of hardwired inside of every human being when he created them. Every one of us has a conscience, and it's kind of hardwired into us, and it is an internal moral judge that kind of evaluates, if you would, what we're saying and what we're doing, and then it testifies to us about it being right or it being wrong. That's what a healthy conscience is supposed to be doing inside of us. Now, in light of that, that's why we say things, right? We've all maybe said it before or heard it. Sometimes somebody will say, I have a guilty conscience, And the idea is what they're saying is, is something I have done, something I've said, I feel kind of condemned or guilty about what I said or what I did. That's what a guilty conscience means. Now, when somebody says the opposite of that, look, man, I got a clean conscience about this. They're saying the opposite. They're basically saying, I am very comfortable with the reality that I'm innocent in this matter. I know I haven't done anything wrong. I I know my innocence and I'm comfortable with that. And a conscience is a wonderful thing. When we're sensitive to its function and purpose, the Bible does say we can defile and even sear our own conscience if we don't listen to it and we reject it and we don't let the Holy Spirit bear witness to us in our conscience at times. But Paul here is saying, I've lived in all good conscience before God, he says to them, till this day. Now, let me just say, I don't think that Paul was referring back to his whole life in that sentence there. Because what we know about Paul the Apostle, when he used to be Saul of Tarsus, Paul would have had plenty to be guilty about, would you agree, in his conscience before he became a Christian. 
He's talked about that. I mean, he had quite a bit in his past they could have a guilty conscience over. So I don't think Paul was reflecting on his whole life. However, when somebody comes to Jesus Christ, the Bible says the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. We become a new creature, a brand new person in Christ. And when we accept Jesus as Savior, he washes away our sin and guilt as we enter into a relationship with the Lord, we truly get a brand new life. We get a chance to start over with a clean slate and our conscience is cleansed of the guilt of our past and our former sin. It's a new birth, a brand new life. And since the moment that Paul on that Damascus road accepted Jesus personally and surrendered his life over to him and is now living this new life, Paul's saying since that day, the day when Paul in essence is thinking since my life began, he says, I'm, I've got a clean conscience before the Lord. I know that I've continued to do what's right to honor Jesus. I've lived with a pure and healthy conscience, he says, in God's sight to this day. And I think that's part of what allowed Paul the Apostle, honestly, folks, to be so influential for the Lord, that he kept a clean conscience. He maintained a good conscience. Paul would say when he writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, I serve God with a pure conscience. In other words, Paul was testifying to Timothy, who he always was trying to mentor and be an example to. He was saying, Timothy, I'm not living with any internal guilt for some little compromise I got going on in my personal life. I'm serving God with a pure conscience, he says. There is nothing that's going on in my personal life that I got shame and guilt over. My conscience is clean. I'm living upright publicly and I'm living upright privately and personally. And therefore, I have a sense of confidence. You know, it is so freeing and encouraging, is it not, to live life with a clean conscience? I hope you appreciate that since you've come to Jesus. It's so wonderful to be able to serve the Lord with a clean and a pure conscience and not know that you're serving the Lord, but yet doing something in your personal life that nobody knows. How wonderful to live with a clean conscience to have a pure conscience and how effective that makes us because we can stand before others and serve with confidence. And I think that's why Paul here has such a sense of confidence. So as Paul makes this statement, he gets out his opening line. And unfortunately, as soon as he gets his opening statement out, what happens? Everything goes sour because verse two says, as Paul makes this declaration, the high priest Ananias, now that's not the same Ananias during the days of Jesus, many uh, decades have passed, so this was just another high priest named Ananias. When Paul said that opening statement, the high priest commanded those who were standing by him to strike him on the mouth. So something immediately offends the high priest and he orders Paul to be struck in the face. Now, it could have been that because these men perceive themselves as very important, I mean, they are the council, they're the Sanhedrin, they're the religious leaders, and they consider themselves very well, you know, important and, and to be esteemed and respected. And then Paul, when he starts to address them, doesn't use fancy titles to address them. He addresses them kind of casually, he says, men and brethren. And maybe, as could be the case with some who think much of themselves, they were offended that he didn't use these distinguished titles. How dare you address us as brethren? Don't you know who we are? Where's the, and, and so maybe that's what offended the high priest, that Paul used casual language. Or it could have been that Paul, who they saw as a very guilty blasphemer of God, 
has just claimed basic total innocence. He's just said, look, you think I'm a blasphemer for God. I think I got a clean conscience. And maybe that was what deeply offended them. They're thinking this man is on trial by our court and counsel in this tribunal. How dare he assert that he has a clean conscience before we render our judgment? Whatever it was, after an opening statement, that high priest, it says, indicates to someone standing by Paul to strike him on the mouth. So Paul makes this opening statement. You can almost sense the high priest from wherever he was. Maybe there's a guard or somebody near Paul and and he motions to Paul. He kind of gives the, whatever the indication is. And this guy comes up and either punches Paul or slaps him in the mouth. This is kind of like what we call, we call a cheap shot, right? When you slap or you punch somebody and they're totally not even expecting it or ready for it. And and now Paul just gets a cheap shot, a punch or a slap right across his mouth in the midst of this. To which verse 3, Paul then responded, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. For you sit to judge me according to the law. And do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? You get the sense Paul got a little testy there? I get the impression that things are getting a little tense, and I think it's fair to say anger is flaring up a little bit, having just been, again, abruptly either punched or slapped in the mouth and in front of other people publicly. Clearly, Paul becomes sincerely angered by the experience. It upsets him. He's frustrated. Being human, he kind of lashes out in frustration towards the one who ordered this and condemns his action. He insults him. And he even basically calls down condemnation from God, threatening God's going to punish him. In anger, Paul says, God's going to strike you, you whitewashed wall, exclamation point. Now, when Paul uses that term whitewashed wall, that was intended to be an insult. It was an insult and everyone knew it was an insult. A whitewashed wall was a reference to the tomb areas in Israel that contained dead bodies and then they would whitewash them with white paint so they were identified as tombs and not just typical rocks in the landscape of Israel so that people would know, oh, that's a tomb so that they didn't touch it because then they would defile themselves ceremonially if they came in contact with the dead and they couldn't go to the temple that day. So they would whitewash their tombs. Now, when somebody called somebody a whitewashed wall, a whitewashed wall was a reference to something that was defiled on the inside, but then painted and cleaned up on the outside. So it was a clear statement to strongly insult somebody as an utter hypocrite. The idea is inwardly you are all defiled and outwardly you've just cleaned yourself up. So it was basically a way to insult somebody for being a person who had double standards, somebody who was defiled inside like a tomb in their personal life, but they covered it up outwardly just to make themselves look good. They were an utter hypocrite, a fake the idea. So he says, God's going to strike you, you hypocrite. There you are hiding behind who you really are. You're just a spiritual fake, Paul says, to the high priest who's just ordered this. He says, you're sitting there in judgment of me that I'm violating the law. You just broke the law and abused your power, having me smacked in the face and I haven't even had a trial yet. And so Paul here gets a little testy and he retorts to him in this way. And I have to say, here you see very clearly, I think the utter humanity of Paul the Apostle. And I'm so glad that God records stuff like this in his word, reminding us that Paul's not some spiritual superhero with no flaws, with no weaknesses, 
that he doesn't at times have shortcomings like every other person. Yes, Paul was a godly servant. He loved the Lord, but he was just a normal human being just like you and I, who at times got angry, at times apparently got testy, at times had an outburst himself of his own anger. And I think in this moment, Paul's kind of, again, he's in a moment of weakness. I mean, the guy's been through a lot recently. He's been beat up and been through a few riots. He's dealing with some frustrating things. And he's kind of maybe if you would push to his breaking point. And I think he kind of just cracks in this moment. He kind of comes to that spot where he kind of lashes out a bit in strong emotion. And in my estimation, I kind of see Paul here just sort of blowing off a little steam in frustration. He just gets a little bit angry and lets out a little outburst of wrath and kind of a verbal attack here and a strong public insult. And I don't know about you, but when I read places like this in the Bible, there's something a little bit freeing about that. Because it kind of allows us in some way as God records this and doesn't clean up everything in the word of God to even see that this godly man apparently behaved like this at times. And in some strange way, it becomes encouraging because it allows us to realize that we may love the Lord and we may seek to live godly and walk in the spirit, yet there will be times when our humanity or our sinful nature will get the best of us and overtake us. And we may perhaps in our own lives in a weakened moment be pushed and kind of break and fall prey to strong emotion, whether again it's an outburst of our temper or saying something in a verbal expression of anger maybe that kind of is just an outburst and behaved in a way that maybe wasn't quite real representative of Christ in the situation and maybe we kind of just you know let a little bit of our sinful nature come to the surface and we say or do things that we probably could have handled a little bit better with self-control and, and not letting our flesh kind of overtake us in the moment. Well, when Paul makes this statement, verse 4, it says, Then those who stood by call Paul into question for this. Again, it was a, a steep insult. They said, Do you revile God's high priest? Another translation renders verse 4. Do you dare to insult God's high priest? So Paul's kind of challenged and he's rebuffed for what was a very strong criticism and strong insult of a leader, he says, look, this guy said, who do you think you are? Speaking like that to someone who has the authority and the position that the high priest does. And again, despite Paul's frustration of what happened to him, this man, the high priest, he was still a leader with God-ordained authority. And so therefore, despite who he may have been personally, he should have been respected still in his treatment because of the position that he held, because he held an office of authority. And so therefore, he should have received some level of respect. The Bible tells us we're commanded to respect the office of the position of someone who has realms of authority, that we're called to do that. We may not respect the person, but we are still to show respect for the office. And so Paul's behavior here is kind of questioned and he gets sort of rebuffed for kind of maybe stepping out of the line a little bit and letting his anger get the best of him and get a little disrespectful because notice Paul, verse five, it says, said, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest for it is written, he holds himself accountable with the scripture. You shall not speak evil, of a ruler of your people. So Paul seems to sense that he did act in a wrong way, that he kind of, if you would, let his words and behavior get a little bit maybe carnal in the moment, and he admits, if indeed that is the high priest, he says, brethren, 
then he says, you know what? Uh, I violated the word of God. And he actually quotes a scripture himself to kind of indict himself. Now, it's interesting in verse five that Paul says, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest. Now, to me, I see Paul taking some ownership and admission of kind of what he did, keeping himself in check. So I don't think Paul is flat out lying here to try and cover himself up as if he's blatantly lying. Oh, I didn't know that was the high priest because he's taking ownership of what he just did wrong. Clearly, there must have been some reason, and I can't be certain, uh, of exactly why Paul didn't know this was the high priest. It could have been that with the quick assembly of the council, maybe he doesn't have on all his you know, religious robes and garb, and he's got on common clothes, and Paul didn't recognize, as well as the fact that, uh, as well, remember, Paul's been away from Jerusalem for many, many years, so perhaps he didn't keep track of who's the current high priest among the group here. He's just in front of 71 religious leaders, kind of thrown together real quickly. We also know the Bible seems to indicate that Paul did have poor eyesight. And maybe if the man's kind of standing further back from where Paul is, that Paul didn't quite perceive who it was that gave the the nod for the whack-a-mole that he got. And so Paul just launches out this statement there. Again, we're not certain, but regardless, Paul does acknowledge openly, if indeed that is the high priest who I just called a whitewashed wall, (laughs) Uh, in front of everybody, then Paul says, you know what? I'm wrong. I admit it. Indeed, I'm wrong. He says, because it is written in scripture, he quotes Exodus 22, you shall not speak evil of a ruler among your people. Those who held an office of leadership should have been shown respect for the office sake, for the position's sake. They're not to be spoken of as evil. Those in leadership should not be insulted and publicly disgraced doesn't matter who the person is or even what they may be doing wrong. There's still a level of respect that should be shown towards them. And God tells us that. Rather, we should refrain from such speech and show proper respect, at least, toward the position of authority. And if you would, in verse 5 here, notice how Paul came to the conclusion that he was wrong in his actions. How did he come to the conclusion that he was wrong? What I see very clearly is he measured his right or wrong according to the standard of God's word. Paul said, here's how I know and why I currently right now in front of all of you feel convicted that what I did was wrong because it violates the standard of truth that I know that exists in God's word. And Paul utilized the word of God, which he knew well and had great respect for, to be able to diagnose whether he was right in his behavior and words or whether he was wrong in his behavior and words. And his respect for God's word and the authority of scripture as the final authority over all matters of faith and conduct are what helped him evaluate and take ownership for when he indeed was guilty and wrong. You see, despite the reality, was Paul treated wrongly? Absolutely. Had some things happened to Paul that kind of probably pushed him to the edge and frustrated him? Most certainly. But despite how Paul felt in his feelings, despite how he thought about the situation, irregardless of that, he still did not have the right to justify or entitle behaving wrongly himself. Because God's word is the final authority. And I think this is what Paul understood. Paul understood, you know what? Yes, I am pretty torqued. Yes, I am about sick and tired of being sick and tired. And that was about the last. But Paul recognized, you know what? Though I am angry, frustrated, overwhelmed, and my emotions are strong and my thoughts are where they are, 
he still realized that doesn't entitle me to disobey the word of God. That does not give me the right to violate the authority of scripture, which said, no matter how you feel, Paul, you still don't have the right to disobey God's word. It was still wrong. And I think this is a great example here that he knew he had to live in compliance with scripture's teaching and took ownership of his personal era of violation. Because you know what, folks? The same should be true in our lives. The best way for us always to evaluate honestly if we are right or wrong in a given situation is by comparing our behavior, our attitude, our actions, our speech to the standard of God's word. Not, well, I feel, or you know what they did to me? or, or I, and, and we we do this and then we start justifying somehow I'm entitled to behave bad because somebody treated me bad. Listen, I may be tempted strongly to behave bad when somebody treated me bad, but I'm not entitled to because I answer to God. And so we have to be very careful because sometimes as Christians, we want to justify, you know, our feelings or our thoughts and all these things. You know, there are times before where I've tried to address somebody in a situation and you try and bring to somebody the truth of God's word and they'll say something like, well, listen, when somebody's hurt, they can't do that. I understand you're hurt and I feel pity for that. But to say, well, when I'm hurting or I'm angry, therefore I don't have to obey the Bible and I can disobey the Bible, that's not safe ground there. We're to always submit our thoughts, feelings, emotions, everything to the authority of Scripture. We are still to obey the Word of God in every situation, and when we don't, it's on us. It's on us. We have sinned, we, and we need to call ourselves into question. The Bible tells us, nevertheless, what does the Scripture say? That's always the question to ask ourselves. Nevertheless, what does the scripture say? And according to the scripture, I am right, or at times, I am wrong. And I think Paul's saying, look, you know, I got angry, but I stepped out of line there because I shouldn't have spoken that way. And Paul takes ownership for that. Now, no doubt Paul senses this tribunal is not going well for him. <laughs> he gets out an opening statement and things get pretty chaotic. And he realizes they are not interested in hearing my testimony about Jesus as much as I wish they were. Just interesting as Jesus said, remember, Jesus told Paul, they're not going to accept your testimony in Jerusalem. Uh, so Paul's realizing this doesn't look good. So now he starts to look for an avenue of how to kind of cut his losses, it almost seems like, and get out of this religious trial. And he uses this divide and conquer tactic that we read about in our opening section. Let's look at verses six through eight. Paul says, I got to get out of this somehow. And he uses quite a quite a creative way it says but when paul perceived that one part were sadducees and the other were pharisees he cried out in the council men and brethren i am a pharisee the son of a pharisee concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead i'm being judged and when he said this a dissension arose between the pharisees and the sadducees and the assembly became divided amongst themselves it says for the sadducees say verse 8 there's no resurrection and no angel or spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. So Paul realizes, I am standing before a council of leaders who, in essence, are supposed to work together, but I know they hold very strongly opposed views on certain subjects. And Paul recognizes this. If I could illustrate, this would be very similar to, like, again, let's take Congress or Senate, and you have Democrats 
and Republicans, right? Two groups who are supposed to work together, but they hold very strong differing views. And if you so choose to strongly stand with one side, you're going to cause a major rift from the other side real fast. And Paul understands this. And he says, ha, there's Pharisees here and there are Sadducees here. This is a perfect opportunity to get them to get their focus off of hating me and get them to kind of divide. Such were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Verse 8 tells us clearly the Sadducees say there's no resurrection or angel or spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. The Sadducees, again, were kind of like the, if we could call the religious liberals of their day. They did not believe, as the Bible tells us right there, in the resurrection after death. They didn't believe in angelic spirits or an afterlife. They were basically those who kind of were moral in their religious lifestyle to a degree, but because they felt there was no obligation to prepare for an afterlife or judgment or anything beyond death, they then became very materialistic ultimately as a sect of religious leaders and they became very carnal in their lifestyles and liberal in their theology because they believed, well, we don't have anything to answer to after death, so we'll kind of be religious but live as loose as we want because there's nothing really to answer to. Now, the Pharisees on the other side of the spectrum, they were the ultra-conservatives in Judaism, observing the very letter of the law, the minutia to the greatest degree. They did believe, the Bible tells us, in resurrection from the dead and afterlife and that angels existed. The of the Pharisees we know over time historically is they became so strict in their religious zeal to keep rules and regulations they then added tons of extra rules and rituals and regulations even beyond scripture so they then became the ultra legalists those who tried to be holy and define holiness by following a list of do's and don'ts and regulations and they embraced religious rule keeping over real relationship with God but they had these very strong differences. And Paul knew these groups divided over this issue of resurrection from the dead. Does somebody come back to life from the dead? But what was Paul preaching in Jesus? That Jesus died on the cross for our sins and Jesus resurrected from the dead. So Paul says, hey, perfect opportunity. Verse six, Paul says, look, men and brethren, I'm a Pharisee. I'm with these guys, the son of a Pharisee. And he says, in fact, concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, that's why I'm being judged today. So Paul says, it's because I believe in the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial here. Well, verse 7 says, when he said that, a dissension then arose between the Pharisees and Sadducees, and they were divided. Look at verse 9. And there arose a loud outcry, and the scribes of the Pharisees' party arose and protested, saying, we find no evil in this man. All of a sudden, Paul's innocent now. This guy believes what we do and our party does. He's a great guy. Don't get rid of him. We believe there's no evil in this man. But if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. So they protest on Paul's behalf. They stand in support of him now and they say, hey, this guy's got the same views that we do. And if some spiritual experience happened and that's what he's talking about, about this thing on the Damascus road and some spiritual being Jesus or some angelic spirit spoke to him then he says if we don't take this guy's word we might be fighting against God so we stand with Paul now all of a sudden they're standing in support of Paul and on his side and verse 10 says there arose such a great dissension 
among the council, the commander, fearing Paul, once again, (laughs) might be pulled to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them and bring him into the barracks. So this is now the third riot Paul's managed to, to stir up in Jerusalem. Now another riot breaks out, if you would, in Congress Hall here, the, the, the riot between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the Roman commander, genuinely concerned for Paul's welfare, again, intervenes, sends his soldiers in and says, grab that guy, take him into protective custody again, get him out of there, because some of them are hating him with great hatred, others love him and they're cheering for him, we need to keep Paul, and it became so drastic, they come in and take over and take Paul into custody, as a prisoner once again it says, verse 10, and they bring him back into the prison barracks. So here's Paul now, again after all this drama, he's stuck back in a prison cell again. Once again, he must feel a little tired and wearied, but more than that, you can tell by the encounter in verse 11 that indeed at this point, Paul clearly is feeling very low and extremely discouraged and very disappointed. Paul is surely struggling with sincere feelings of disappointment and discouragement, and we'll see that as we look at verse 11. That is exactly why Jesus showed up. And think about the reality of that. Paul had such a burden to want to share Jesus Christ with the Jews, right? And so when Paul went to Jerusalem, he longed for this chance, and he yearned to see multitudes of Jewish people like him recognize Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the Savior, and to see this great awakening, he thought, I, I know I can bring it, Lord. I mean, he went there multiple times and tried it. And he says, Lord, I, I'm a Pharisee of the Pharisees. I am the perfect guy for this. And he so wanted to see, I mean, he had a burden for the people. He so wanted to see this spiritual fruit come. Yet as he returns to Jerusalem again now, this third time historically, and his testimony is given, he's refused and rejected. And things go awry. Think of what's unfolded in our last couple chapters together. Paul's falsely accused. He's attacked. He's beaten up. They're trying to beat him to death. He wants to share his testimony afterwards. He gets an opportunity. He gets up. He starts to share his conversion with a whole crowd of Jewish people. And he's thinking, all right, at least I got a chance to preach to him. Even though they beat me up, I can still tell them about my testimony, of how Jesus revealed himself to me. And maybe they'll understand. And he starts to share the account of his own conversion experience. Ultimately, he mentions at the end of it that he was then told that his assignment was to go reach the Gentiles. Whew. Now everybody's not listening again. They throw up dirt in the air and there's this riot and this uproar and a riot breaks out. And then finally, Paul gets a chance to do what? Stand before the Sanhedrin, the religious ruling council. And Paul's thinking, as I said earlier, man, whoa, this is the best. Man, all this, the beating, maybe it was all setting me up for this. God wanted me to talk to the religious council so I can tell them. Paul gets out his opening statement. And it tanks. His opening statement, on top of that, whack, he's smacked in the face or punched in the face. Then he gets in the flesh. You whitewashed wall. Now all of a sudden he's not talking about Jesus. He's insulting people. He's getting all upset. And then he says, well, how do I get out of this? And then he starts another riot and they have to rush in and pull him back. And now again, they put him back in the jail again for his own safety and survival. And Paul's no doubt, because of that, pretty disappointed. 
Everything that he hoped was going to go to a certain way, all his desires and plans didn't come to fruition the way he wanted them to, the way he envisioned that they could. His dreams have kind of crashed. He's tired. He's bummed out. He's discouraged. And perhaps he does what we all do. I have to wonder if maybe he's doing the whole question thing that we do when we get disappointed, right? Is Paul maybe kind of going, why did I have to say Gentiles? I mean, I could have just said he told me, leave here and go out and minister. What was I thinking? I'm a Jew. I should have thought of that. Why, Paul, what did you say Gentiles for? I don't know, but you and I get frustrated myself, I say my name. Usually when I'm doing work projects around my house, Tony, Tony, Tony. It just, and I'm, I imagine Paul's doing that. Why did I have to say Gentiles? If I just wouldn't have said Gentiles. And then he's, you know, as he went before the, the leadership, he said, why did I have a better opening than men and brethren? I'm totally innocent. Why didn't, I mean, why did, Paul, you couldn't have a better opening than that? And then when they slapped me, I've been beaten up before. Why did I have to say that whitewashed wall thing? What's the matter with me? Why did I got to get, well, I could have had self-control. And no doubt, Paul, again, he's probably disappointed. Things have not gone how he's planned. He's greatly discouraged, battling discouragement, even as a servant of the Lord. And you know, perhaps today, you may be battling with discouragement personally yourself. It happened to Paul the Apostle. Paul got deeply discouraged. Be aware, everybody at times goes through discouragement. It's a part of the battles of human existence. Every one of us at times in our life, even godly men like Elijah and David and Paul, we see in the scriptures, got discouraged at times. Became downcast, depressed, and disappointed. Different things can cause it. We can all grow weary in well-doing. And there are times, too, where we're confronted with our own disappointments what we thought was going to go a certain way didn't go a certain way. What we hoped would have gone well didn't go well. And we have to deal with feeling discouraged or frustrated over how things happened or didn't happen or things didn't unfold the way we expected. And then we're kind of downcast and discouraged and under the weight of we know what it's like, that big, dark, heavy cloud that we're dealing with and we're questioning things. Look, let me say in those times... You can be discouraged, but it doesn't have to destroy you. Wait on the Lord. He knows what you're feeling. He understands what you're thinking and what your thoughts and your emotions are doing when that dark cloud's swirling around you. Paul's deeply discouraged. And look what happens in verse 11 as Paul's in this deep discouragement in this prison cell, beaten up, tired, wearied. It says, but the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, be of good cheer, Paul. For as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness to me in Rome. Look what Jesus does with this discouraged servant. He comes and he comforts Paul by his presence at a very low point in his life, mentally and emotionally and spiritually. I love what it says, verse 11. It says, the Lord stood by him. The Greek indicates to appear suddenly to be next to somebody and to stand together with them in what they're going through. Here in the midst of this moment, Jesus pays a personal visit to Paul in his weary and discouraged state to lift him up when he's down, seeing Paul likely as downcast and he's very discouraged. He's struggling with maybe disappointment and knowing Paul's under that heavy, dark cloud, Jesus comes and he intervenes right into a situation and he allows Paul to sense that the Lord's standing right there with him. 
and that he's with him in the midst of it, that he's not abandoned, that he's not alone, that Jesus knew exactly what he was feeling, and he was standing there with him to help him in the midst of it. Second Timothy chapter 4 perhaps is a reference to Paul's experience during this time. Paul says there, at my first defense, no one stood with me and all forsook me, but the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. You know, folks, isn't it a wonderful thing when the Lord graciously comes at times and you can tell he's standing there with you? And he just lets you, he just allows you to sense his presence and that he's come in that moment and that he's there and he's aware of how you're feeling and he knows what you're dealing with, the discouragement, the disappointment. And he just comes and he stands by you. And you can just tell that he's with you and he makes it evident to you that he's standing in, in support of you and that he's with you. Are you discouraged today? Listen, pay attention if you're discouraged today because the Lord is near. The Lord's not going to abandon you in that situation. Notice his words to Paul as well, Jesus' words. He stood by him and he said, Paul, be of good cheer. The idea there in essence is, Paul, cheer up. Some translations around that, take courage. Or, Paul, you be encouraged. Jesus saying, Paul, I'm not upset with you. You may be upset with yourself, but Paul, I'm, I'm not upset with you and I'm still here with you. You're not alone and you're not abandoned. I'm standing with you, Paul. And regardless of your perspective or how you feel, Paul, you cheer up and you keep going. You keep going, Paul. Cheer up and you keep at it. One commentator said, I quote, The Lord did not condemn Paul for feeling discouraged, but neither did he let him stay there. And look what the Lord does to encourage him. He speaks of his approval of what Paul had did and his plans of what he still had for Paul to do. He says, Paul, you be of good courage. You be encouraged. Cheer up. For as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness in Rome. First, Jesus assures him that he recognized Paul's labors and efforts to minister in Jerusalem despite how things unfolded. Do you see what he says there in verse 11? He says, Paul, as you have testified for me in Jerusalem. In other words, Paul, what you did in Jerusalem, it wasn't in vain. You did testify for me. Maybe the results didn't unfold the way you expected, Paul. You wished your testimony was received, but Paul, you did testify for me in Jerusalem. What you did, I acknowledge. From my perspective, you did bear witness. You spoke my word. You may not have had a favorable response, but I'm pleased with your willingness and your faithfulness to do what you did, even though the response wasn't what you wanted. So, Paul, you remember, you, you, you did bear witness of me there. Because maybe Paul was thinking, man, I wanted to bear witness. And Jesus saying, from my perspective, you did bear witness. You were faithful, Paul. And I think we need to remember in our lives that the Lord is pleased and approves with our willingness and our faithfulness in what we do for him, folks. We can't control the response when you share the gospel. You can't control the response of the person you share the gospel with, but if you faithfully testify to the gospel, you've done well. You can't control your response to ministry or efforts to help somebody or trying to do what's right in a situation. That dynamic happens between people and the Lord. All we can do is be faithful to do our part. And the good news is, is the Lord honors that. And the Lord says, you did your part. You did your part. And I'm proud of you that you did your part. You did well, and I'm pleased with what you did, and I accept that. And then Jesus comforts Paul with his future plans. And he says, Paul, even as you testify to me in Jerusalem, so now you must also bear witness in Rome. 
Now, I think this is beautiful because the Lord says, Paul, not only did I see what you did in Jerusalem, and to me, did you bear witness in Jerusalem despite what happened? But he says, Paul, I'm not done with you. Because Paul, just as you ministered in Jerusalem, now he says, I have plans for you, a new assignment, a next season. Paul would go to Rome, the capital city of the Roman Empire, and bear witness of Jesus there before kings and rulers and Caesar's household. Talk about from the ashes of defeat to the road of triumph. Paul goes from thinking he failed in Jerusalem with the incredible privilege. Paul, I'm giving you an even greater assignment. Now you're going to the capital of the Roman Empire. And now I'm sending you to Rome. You know, perhaps in your life this morning, I don't know, maybe things didn't work out too well with something that you attempted. Maybe it was a relationship. Maybe it was some endeavor you entered into. Maybe it was something you tried or attempted or gave your best to. And maybe things didn't work out too well in what you attempted. Can I say, take courage? Because sometimes the Lord even allows things to unfold in certain ways the way that he does in order to prepare us for the next assignment. Or even maybe to free us for the thing that he does want us to do in the very next season of our life. Ecclesiastes 3 says, to everything there's a season and a time for every purpose or activity under heaven. And maybe the Lord says, you did what you did, and despite how it unfolded, that was to prepare you and get you ready because there's a new purpose for the next season. There's something else that I was getting you ready for. He already has good plans of how he wants to use you in the days ahead. The Lord's not done with you. Even as you, whatever, so now also, the Lord has something for you next. The Lord has the next step, the next phase. Take courage, he's standing with you. And I might say this morning, perhaps it's time to forget what's behind, to let it go and reach forward towards what's ahead. Isaiah 43 says, forget the former things, do not dwell on the past. Behold, I will do a new thing, says the Lord. Now it shall spring forth and I will make a road in the wilderness. Hey, can I encourage you this morning? by telling you on behalf of the Lord, don't be paralyzed by your past. Be encouraged and embrace what the Lord has for you in your future. Let's stand together. Let's pray.